This is the commercial property show, Australia. Show number 40. A lot of the activity has been on major industrial holdings and holdings of other specialist types of real estate that have become more into favour from big investors and by nature, some of the bigger opportunities. Hey, commercial property community. Thank you for joining me once again today. We are really getting up there now. Episode 40. My name is Andrew Bean. I am your host today, and in today's show, Ben Burtson and Angus Clem join me on today's show to talk about the huge rise in corporate sales that they're seeing across the market. These are the deals that the big boys are doing. We're talking 50 to $100 million deals, and that's what this show is all about, the big boys. Investing in commercial property is a lot like a team sport. You need a lot of good players around you to complete a property transaction. No one can do it alone. If you're like me and want to surround yourself with like-minded people who have similar property goals, people who motivate you and push you to achieve more, then come and join the commercial property community today. You can find our private group on Facebook by searching Commercial Property Show Community or you can click on the link in the show notes. Our expert guests are just waiting to answer your questions in the forum and together we can help each other reach the ultimate goal of financial freedom. For the first time, we have two guests on today's show. Please make welcome Chief Economist at Knight Frank, Ben Burtson and Head of Industrial Investments in New South Wales at Knight Frank, Angus Clem. How are you, fellas? Very well, Andrew. Great to be with you. Good, thanks, Andrew. Looking forward to uh, to the chat. Excellent, guys. So recently, Ben, you published an interesting report about the rising corporate sales during the COVID period, and we're going to have a good chat about that today. So, mate, why do you think there has been a rise in corporate sales? A couple of reasons, Andrew. I think what we've seen over the past year is businesses thinking about this issue in a way that they might not have for some time. And I think that's partly been motivated by the pandemic. I think obviously this time last year, the outlook was very uncertain and it still is to some extent. But I think in the early stages of the pandemic, business would have been thinking what steps they needed to take to prepare for an uncertain period and potentially a downturn of unknown duration. And I think part of that process would have led them to think about shoring up their balance sheet and there's a potential role to play there in asset sales. So I think that's one reason. And then I think at the same time, what we've seen in property markets particularly, or more particularly in property markets, is really strong growth in some sectors. And some of that growth really not being affected by the pandemic. Now, for instance, industrial property, which I'm sure we'll talk on in more detail through today's session, industrial property has really been seeing a lot of strong growth. And actually, 
if anything, the pandemic seems to have accelerated some aspects of that. And so what that's meant is that businesses holding industrial property have seen the value of that property rise. Now, they may not have gone into though have conducted those acquisitions in the first place with a view to being a property investor. They probably held them first and foremost for business reasons, but the value of those assets has risen. There's really strong investor demand for certain types of property assets. And so that has then given the opportunity to crystallise some gains. So I think it's the combination of those two factors. Firstly, the economic factor and the uncertain outlook arising from the pandemic. And then secondly, and specific to property, the strong growth in asset prices in some parts of the market. Yeah, fair enough. So Angus, what sector are the majority of these corporate sales coming from? There's no real rhyme or reason to it. There seems to be a nice spread between that sort of mid-tier corporates, particularly sort of I think Ben alluded to before, that have held assets for a long time uh, for operational reasons. Invariably, those companies, well, the buildings that those companies occupy get to a functionally obsolete state and they need to pack up and move. There's a fair bit of M&A activity. So that's sort of mid-tier corporates we're seeing a fair bit of activity. And then out to the really big businesses such as Qantas, who clearly are in a facing difficult period of trading just because of the pandemic, and they're sitting on a lot of assets that are worth a lot of money. So I guess a reasonably simple way for them to show up balance sheet is to do a leaseback, which they're about to undertake in, in South Sydney. So I think it's really a combination of all sectors of it, but probably more so in that mid-tier, privately held businesses whereby the asset values a very large part of their balance sheet, and really they shouldn't be. That money should be sitting in inside the business, getting a lot better return than, say, the property has been. I did see that listing come up, actually, for Qantas, and I found that actually quite interesting. When you say they're doing a leaseback, what kind of period are they talking about? It varies. It's really open to the market for the market to really determine how long leaseback is provided. I think there's an underlying time frame that they're looking at a nine and a nine year lease or freehold. So really it's uh, with these leaseback, it's often open-ended. There's really no rhyme or reason as to how long. Yeah, I guess with the airports, from what I've seen in the past, they usually do have like a 99 year lease on them. But I guess yeah. some of these other corporate sales, it's not going to be 99 year lease, obviously. It's going to be no, like the majority, a lot shorter. Yeah, sorry. The majority of them is 10 years, we're finding. So that's the sort of standard range. Some of them are up to 15 years. Other leasebacks are only five years. It's really dependent on where their operation's at and what they're trying to achieve out of it. But uh, yeah, it just, it varies. And so when you're putting together like the valuation for this, you're obviously using a rate per square meter. Is it very hard to come up with that figure taking into account the tenant and then obviously the lease period they're going to have as well? Uh, it's not really a rate per meter. It's more the, the yield. The rate per meter is just more a result of the value which is determined by the income and the yield. No, it's not difficult. It's a very open marketplace. There's a lot of data that's readily accessible. It's very public. So each market's got its own its own sort of dynamics and fundamentals. But essentially around Sydney, it's reasonably clear to understand where the rent should be set just based on other deals in the marketplace. And then the investment yield is really determined by the strength of the covenant, the length of the lease, the nature of the improvements, the location of the buildings. But no, it's not difficult to set those rents. No, it's quite a buoyant market. There's lots of activity, a lot of comparable evidence. But when you're actually coming up with the yield, because 
the tenants, the owners actually going to say, hey, we're going to be able to pay this much. Don't you yep. bring it back to a rate per square meter for the actual property that they're tenanting? Yeah, we do. That's what I'm saying. So there's a lot of evidence from where, because at the start of it, ordinarily they're either paying themselves a rent or there's no rent. So yes, you do have to establish a rent. But in establishing that rent, it's not that difficult because there's a lot of evidence generally in the marketplace of comparable buildings. And off those comparables, you set a rent. So yeah. But so when you're actually determining the rate per square meter, I mean, the market's moving so quickly. What kind of period are you using for recent sales? Yeah, I think there's a period of probably we generally look back yeah. every three months and clearly we're transacting all the time. We're the forefront of a lot of the major transactions in town. So not only the deals we're doing, the deals that is generally happening in the marketplace and also the ones we're constructing at any one time. But generally, it's the last three months that we look at. Yeah, fair enough. So, Ben, are these uh, deals predominantly happening in capital cities or are they also in a regional market as well? I think given the nature of property and where the value is, Andrew, there is more of a concentration in capital cities. I think that a lot of the activity has been on major industrial holdings and holdings of other specialist types of real estate that have become more into favour from big investors and by nature, some of the bigger opportunities both for corporates to crystallise gains on those assets and significant cash as a result that comes in capital cities, but it's not exclusive to that. I mean, what we have seen is portfolio deals across a number of sectors with some of those assets being spread widely, both in cities and in regional areas. So it's not really a city-specific trend. It just happens to be the case that more of the property value tends to be located in the big cities. And you mentioned specialty properties there. What type of specialty properties are we talking about? We're thinking of things like there's been service station assets that have been traded. There's been a lot of industrial assets that have been traded. There's been some the infrastructure end of properties, some major data center type assets traded. And so it's probably that sort of real estate that the initiation of that real estate, its original purpose was there was an operational aspect for a corporate but what's happened i think as the major sectors your office sector the retail sector that have been of course the mainstay of major investor portfolios it has become the weight of investor demand in those sectors has led to it becoming a little bit more difficult to find big opportunities and so some of the investors are looking outside of that and they're looking more industrial and logistics property in a way that they perhaps wouldn't have five or 10 years ago. And they're also looking at some of that operational real estate of some of the types that I mentioned as offering strong and stable income prospects. And so those sectors have come to the fore in a way that they haven't so much in the past. And just so the listeners totally understand, Angus, what kind of price range are we talking about for these types of assets that are having leasebacks? Look, it's probably minimum 10 million, up to 500 million. So it's a wide range, but I would say the most typical size range would be about 50 million. Yeah, perfect. So they're pretty big deals. What kind of cap rate are we talking for? You know, if you have put a range on it, what kind of cap rate are we talking for these deals? So in Sydney, it's certainly on a super prime, that's super prime location, tenant, quality of building and lease term. Certainly there's evidence of deals going under 4%, which historically is really quite an unusual situation with the cost of money where it's at, the demand that's chasing it, and also the length. Probably the average lease term, as I was saying before, is probably around 10 years. So, And those rents sort of uh, are reviewed annually and generally upwards. So it's quite an attractive proposition. 
also the deals are usually predicated on one or two or you know a very small amount of, of tenants on a leaseback situation obviously it's only one so from a management point of view it's a lot easier than, than say managing a retail center or you know, a multi-let office asset so yeah look it's generally around those parameters and for the listeners who have never heard the term super prime before can you just explain what that means yeah, so super prime is when, I guess, from an investor's point of view, all the stars align. And as I said before, there's probably a few components. One is what everyone looks through from an institutional level is really the covenant or the nature of the tenant and their ability essentially to pay the rent and not go under. Uh, we've had a terrific run in corporate Australia of not too many businesses falling to the sword, but the majority of the value is locked into the tenant and their ability also, simple real estate dynamics of location and that's proximity, particularly industrial in and around infrastructure nodes and certainly Western Sydney in particular is the beneficiary of a whole lot of infrastructure spend. So if it's in Western Sydney or anywhere in Sydney, really, it's such a fortunate place that's got a surrounded by infrastructure inputs. The tenant itself are very strong. They're the, probably the two main factors that make it creep into that super prime space. And then there's other factors such as the quality of the building and the nature of, of those improvements. Clearly, the newer the building, the less capital expenditure that has to be put in it. And so that really affects it too. And if it's got a design that is multifunctional and provides for a long term, normally these buildings are built for 25 to 30 years of life, but the tenants usually take at least, say, 10 years. So ordinarily, any one building may have two or three tenants over the course of its life. So what the investor does look at is the functionality and the, the relatability of that space. So in the event that the tenant chooses not to renew after their term of five or 10 years, then how difficult is it going to be to relet? Because once these things are vacant, as opposed to, say, residential, there's a lot of time, effort and money that goes into inducing a new tenant. So the lower the downtime, the less financial inducement that has to happen to try and lure a tenant in, the less marketing, obviously less downtime, as I say, with no rents coming in. When those things are factored in too, and if they're all positive, then that helps with a super prime, with construction of the super prime sort of tag. But I think mainly it's about the location. It's about who the tenant is. But also scale. As I said before, it looks like to me that the average deal is around 50 million. At 10 million bucks, it's from an investment point of view, at the lower end of the scale. And most of the acquiring entities are really looking at scale. So the bigger it is, in fact, the more super prime it is as well. Okay, so you're describing Superprime as the aspects of the actual investment, not the dollar figure that's attached to it. No, 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 I am. I think, as I said, the bigger the better. A lot of these firms, particularly from the institutional grade, because we need to break it up between institutional grades, so the likes of AMP and Charter Hall and Goodman and those sort of MERVAC, those, I guess, listed property trusts versus the private groups. The major institutions generally won't look at that acquisition under $20 million, although, in fact, that's probably being pulled back down to 10 million because some institutions have got some private mandates and private capital. But essentially, the institutions won't look at, at deals under 20 million and they're a lot more comfortable at 50 or 100 million. And any new entrants coming into, into the country, generally, they're looking at, at probably a minimum investment of 100 million. So there's pretty big numbers that are bandied around. But it's just that the cost of doing business and also the, the efficiencies of scale of size come into play, particularly in industrial at the moment. Okay, yeah, fair enough. So can you name some of the big corporations that are actually putting their properties up for sale or they have in the past recently? 
Yeah, sure. There's uh, Sigma Pharmaceuticals have done a deal recently, Border Express, a big uh, logistics company, DHL, one of the world's largest logistic companies, have done sun leasebacks, Tull have sold buildings, Australia Post have sold buildings. I think there's a whole gamut of corporate Australia have certainly, particularly the last two years, have been selling. As I said before, they really need to look at essentially the properties pretty lazy and if they're getting a 4% return on the books as opposed to just putting it back in the business where they're chasing us in 15, they're better off doing a lease back and selling to one of the property institutions, taking the money. There's hopefully, fingers crossed for Qantas, that happens for them and they can put that money to work in a lot more efficient manner. But there's a host of companies that have been active in that space. Yeah, it makes sense. So Ben, do you see any risks involved for these major corporations doing this in future? Well, not really, Andrew. No, look, I think that it is always, it's case by case and without knowing the particular business motivations of each firm, I'm sure they've generally thought it's from their perspective, what they'll be wanting to make sure is that their operational capability and what they need to do as a business and the property requirements arising for that will continue to be able to be met in a sale and leaseback arrangement. So obviously when you own something that implies your ultimate control over the asset. And if the asset is sold, then obviously over the longer term, there's not as much control there. But when these long-term leases, the sorts of longer-term commitments that Angus is referring to, business will be careful to ensure that they maintain operational flexibility. And so to the extent that they do that, they are managing any potential risk that comes with not owning the asset anymore. And I guess a lot of them are also putting extensive option periods on there as well at the end, because I can imagine at the end of a lease with no option periods, particularly if the asset has an aspect where it can be developed or improved, the owner might want to change the use of that property and then remove that tenant. Well, I suppose that they may do. I tend to think that's unlikely in the sense that I think we have an alignment of interest here in that the corporate wants to maintain the optionality and actually that option is almost always a real positive for the investor because the investor perspective is that what they are, what they're ultimately wanting is long-term stable income streams. And Angus alluded to the fact that these investors tend to have a lower cost of capital. So there's a lot of investors in the global marketplace at the moment who are really hunting industrial property and they're bidding up the prices to quite high levels that we haven't seen before. And that's happening not only in Australia, but around the world. It's becoming increasingly commonplace for those super prime industrial assets where there are you know, high quality assets with long-term income streams that the yields on those assets are now edging below 4% in Australia and they're edging overseas, they're, they're even lower in some markets, so closer to 3% in some parts of Europe. And so that's a low yield, that implies a reasonably low level of income return. And as Angus mentioned, corporates will generally have a higher cost of capital, they'll be looking for a higher return and this frees up capital for them to use in their business. And of course, they want to maintain proper flexibility and operational independence and also optionality to extend that lease. And that's generally very well aligned with the investor interest, which is generally for an even longer term asset. So to the extent that the corporate remains in place, they're generally very happy with that. And it's less common that they would want to really be making large scale changes to those assets, especially if it was going to not be aligned with what their tenant would want because that would present the risk that the tenant might want to move on. 
And I guess this is a question for both of you. Like, how low do you think cap rates will go before investors start looking at alternative assets? As I alluded to there, we, we've seen a lot of yield compression. And indeed, part of the reason for this trend is what we've seen, not only in industrial markets, but I think industrial property has been the most striking example where five years ago, these sort of super prime industrial assets would have been trading at yields of around 6%, Sydney and Melbourne. And now we're closing in on four. And in some cases, some of the yields being traded might even be edging slightly below that. So that's a really significant change. And if Australia was alone there, you might think, well, it would strike you as quite odd, but actually it's really part of a global trend. It is linked to the really low interest rates that we see. And what we see overseas, some of those yields in some markets edging even closer to to 3%. So look, I don't think it'll get quite as low in Australia as it has in some parts of Europe, for instance, because even though while we've got low interest rates, they're even lower over there. So I think we are probably getting toward yeah the point where it gets difficult to see two more. But I think the growth that we see in the market at the moment, the fact that I think investors are anticipating some rental growth over the next couple of years, that means that there's going to be continued downward pressure on yields in the near term. So I won't put a particular number on it, but I'd say that by this point, we've seen most of it. Yeah, because I mean, obviously, commercial property, it's a cash flow play. There has to be some kind of dividend for their investors for these big institutions. So at some point, it has to be like, okay, well, this is not going to work out. Do you think that it could ever go into where commercial property for these type of super prime assets could also be a capital gains kind of play like they're not worried about cash flow they're only worried about capital gains yeah in certain areas definitely i mean you've seen in the last say 20 years south sydney in particular as a region just be completely transformed by some really proactive zonings down there and just its absolute proximity to major infrastructure air and seaport and the cbd and sydney's east it's a really unique area and a lot of investors there have speculatively bought in with eyes more absolutely for capital growth and particularly around the planning and the upside and the value in the airspace, as opposed to, say, something in Western Sydney, which is more dormant and is less politically charged, particularly with the planning. You know, we're seeing with the planning more and more, you know, Minister Stokes not wanting to change employment lands because it generates employment and they don't really want to change it into residential or other uses because we need land that that is a, provides for people's employment. But as I said, there is sectors of the marketplace, Lower North Shore, South Sydney, where absolutely groups are saying, well, whatever yield I can get, I can get. Remember, these leases are 99 times out of 100, they're net leases. So the outgoings, land takes, council rates, water rates, those sort of things are paid by the tenant. So if they can get a deal whereby all those expenses are paid for, and I guess the debt paid for, at least a lot of it, then they're okay if they've got an eye on, on development. There is absolutely a sector of the investment market that are more concerned with capital growth than income. And, and they're more aggressively focused on development deals and planning upside as opposed to having a DNA which is centred around cash flow and certainty and security. It's just different specters, sectors of the market. Yeah, it's very interesting how the times are changing with these, these huge super prime assets. So, mate, why do you think these corporations are freeing up capital? What are they actually going to be using it for? I think it's just simple rationalisation and just a lot of the groups, when you talk to them and we ask in their boardrooms virtually at the moment, it's really just where they are with their development of their business. Some of them 
we go and see and we talk about the virtues of the market and how strong it is and we get a polite no because there's just no need, no requirement. There's no event that's changing their direction. But on the other side of the coin, where there's change, usually that's when we see opportunity for us to strike a deal. And by change, usually it's maybe some corporate activity where two competitors decide to join forces and take on a different sector of the market and get bigger. And they just really want to get their hands on the cash flow and get that out of the assets and really focus on the growth and development of their business. And that financial certainty allows them to springboard and to do that. And there's also, unfortunately, in the current environment, there's businesses which need the money. I mean, we saw a deal in South Sydney with Opera Australia. Obviously, they're, they're struggling. They can't put shows on and it's awful for culture and the arts in Sydney that they can't perform. But they're sitting on an asset worth $50 million. We've seen the, you know, the ABC, they've been selling sites, uh, one or two sites around the country. It's just a rationalisation for various reasons, either need the money or the building itself has just become obsolete and mm. they just don't need it anymore. Everyone's got their own story and everyone's different. Yes, there's themes, but each business has got its own, I guess, their own driver. And for us, we need to listen and to understand what those are. And then hopefully we can set up a situation where, as Ben alluded to before, invariably, particularly with leasebacks, most of the time everyone comes out quite happy and the owner of the site gets to crystallise the money, they get to stay on a lease which they create on terms that suit them and the incoming investor gets their hands on a normally a terrific piece of real estate uh, with a happy tenant. So it's quite a win-win, these leasebacks. Yeah, definitely. Are your agents actually approaching businesses and trying to construct these deals? Well, I hope so. Otherwise, they, they won't be writing any deals or commissions. So, yeah, absolutely. We you know we've got a quite a methodical targeted approach that we go by. Yes, there's opportunistic times whereby we hear things in the press and we're sort of reactive to that. But that that only get you so far. And with real estate, it's a it's a systematic job. You need to ensure you've got plenty of really good lists, and you're really working relationships which which we have corporately or from socially within the firm that. Someone knows someone and we've got an in. But invariably, we work through patches and we work through industries and we always work through lists daily and talk to as many people as we can about what's happening in the market to enlighten them. The bigger companies have got their own property managers who are a lot more aware of current themes and rates and prices. Others don't. And so we just really need to talk to as many people as we can and to um, do as many presentations as we can about the market and hopefully pick up enough pipeline of work that keeps us all housed and fed. Yeah, so I mean, like these corporations, they're not just approaching you. You guys are actively saying to these guys, hey, you know, it's a really good market right now. This is what you could achieve for your property right now. Is it viable? Do you want to go down this road? Yeah, that's right. Without obviously being overly aggressive or pushy, yeah, I mean, it's a numbers game for us. We've got to be in front of as many people as we can. And then invariably, the best form of um, new business for us are referrals. So we do a deal with particularly in, in certain industry groups, that they generally know one another. If we do a good deal and present good opportunity and give that business a good experience out of the blue, we're fortunate enough to get phone calls where people ask us to come in and have a chat to them about their asset. So a lot of it's referral work from particularly industry-aligned and related companies. And once we break into one, it usually opens up more opportunity for us. And usually there's a theme too, whereby a certain industry is you're going a certain direction that might be a change brought about by government policy and there's advantages or disadvantages for them and then they're all in the same boat. So, yeah, there's often a theme in play and then we follow that as close as we can. 
but also too, as I said, it's about us balls in the air and talking as many as we can. And on these huge sales, like how does the commission like structure for these agents? It must be like ridiculously advantageous to secure these deals as the agent. Yeah, well, I'm sitting here talking to you. I'm not sitting in Mallorca anywhere. So, I'm, <laughs> yeah, look, it's competitive. There's there's some terrific operators out there in our space and they work for us and they work for our competitors. Uh, the investment banks certainly are stepping into the space which is interesting. And also the you know accountancy that sort of those consultants are coming in as well. So when a market like this is running, everyone sort of wants a piece of it. But also you're dealing with uh, invariably very professional CFOs, procurement managers who very much know the, the value of a dollar and are very aware of the market. There's no easy wins for us. And often we structure it whereby we if we do very well, we get rewarded for that. But the base rates are up. They could always be higher, but invariably a market gets established and everyone's competitive and they'll pay what they've got to pay. But yes, certainly sometimes if we hit a certain rate, there's extra reward for us and we're incentivised that way. But no, we're certainly there's certainly not absolutely rivers of gold there. It's quite a competitive market. So like the rates that you're charging, is it like 1.8% of the value of the sale? No. No, not that high. Not that, no. not that low. <laughs> I'll just say no. Okay. <laughs> I was trying to squeeze a dollar figure out of you, but it's okay. We'll leave it there. So, Ben, what do you think will happen when interest rates do start to go up? Because, I mean, they're not going to stay down forever. They might be down for a long period, but eventually things will go up. Well, people have been talking about this, Andrew, for roughly 10 years now. In fact, you know, coming on more than 10 years, I mean, the general expectation has been that rates would rise and actually over that period they've continued to fall so Mm. look you're right having fallen so far it's difficult to imagine that the next decade would look anything like the last decade but i don't think we're in for any significant escalation for some time i think the reserve bank has set out its stall very clearly the u.s federal reserve has done that also you know for, for our in australia i mean we don't have the sorts of inflationary pressure that they're experiencing in the u.s at the moment, I think earlier in the year, there was you know, significant debate as to what extent we would mirror the US experience. And reflecting that debate, we saw a bond yield spike, but that's now largely retraced its steps. The 10-year yield is back close to 1%. And I think in the current context of renewed lockdowns, I think that debate can be put off for another few months before we start then to talk about when are things going to pick up. So, Look, I mean, obviously, these things are difficult to predict and taking a long-term perspective, I think you do have to build in the expectation that interest rates will rise somewhat, but I don't think that we go back towards historic averages. I think that when we talk about rises, yet we're sort of thinking maybe 100 to 150 basis points over the medium to long term. I don't see a prospect of us sort of getting back to where interest rates were 15 and 20 years ago. And I think that's the global context. Those long-term interest rates reflect global forces. Some countries have been experiencing that for even longer. I think we've been a bit late to join that grouping, if you like, with low interest rates, but we're very much there now. So you're right in the sense that we can't expect them to stay at current levels forever, but I don't anticipate any really significant upward pressure in the near term. And I think investors build that into their expectations. I think they're not anticipating that interest rates will stay at the, the sort of rock bottom lows of Uh, 1% bond yields for the next 10 years. I think they are expecting some modest movement 
And coming back to the point, and what we're talking about here is more the long income deals. That's where there's a really significant investor appetite at the moment. And I think those investors are not really playing a cycle. I think they're taking a long-term position. They want to own stable income producing assets over the long term. They want to ride through the cycles. And so I don't expect any significant change, even if as and when interest rates rise a bit from their current low levels, I don't think that that will materially change the strong investor appetite for these assets. Yeah, and the type of tenant they're buying that are tenanting these properties, it's a quite a good safe bet, isn't it? It is. And I think what we've seen in the market is more of a demand for this sort of stable long income product. I think in, at a time, even as two or three years ago, when we were seeing a really strong upswing in office and industrial markets, I think investors were really looking at that growth opportunity. I think the pandemic has brought people back to looking at long-term stability of income as a key driver. And so I think to the extent you've got stable tenants in place, the prospect that those long leases could be extended even further, I think investors have a huge appetite for that sort of product. And obviously, they'd like some growth to, to, to come with that. And so they might like a bit more yield compression or rental growth. But I think there's a lot of investors out there who, even if they don't necessarily have to get that to be interested in, in inquiring that sort of property. And in your opinion, are we nearing the top of the cycle for industrial sector? There's a few ways to approach that question. Look, markets do move in cycles. I'd say that the dynamics that we've referred to over the past 10 years have probably dampened some of that cyclicality in the sense that the low interest rate environment and the extent of investor demand arising from the, the shift away from other you know, bonds and the sorts of fixed income, which are offering very low income returns and towards property and infrastructure assets offering stable income returns. I think the weight of that investor demand means that were we to see a change and a bit of a, a downturn in property with some higher yields, I think it, that wouldn't have to move very far before the investors responded very swiftly. I think the demand base there is so strong that I think the market is going to trade with yields at a lower band, but also a tighter band. So when we do see a bit of yield movement, I think that if we think back to previous cycles, the early 90s and the time of the GFC, where we saw some quite significant outward yield movement, I think it's difficult to imagine that now because the monetary conditions are very different. The extent of the invested demand just makes that quite unlikely. So look, I mean, I think it's always you know, difficult to make a precise uh, call on it. And look, I think at the moment, the stars are aligned for a bit more growth. And I don't see that ending in a downturn. I see that ending then in a period of stability. Yeah. No, I definitely agree. I mean, it just wouldn't make any sense for there to be a downturn in the industrial sector right now. It's just going to be going sideways for a while, which is stability. I think that's right. So as I've referred, I think we're coming to the end of that really strong run of growth. And from then I see yields stabilising at a low level that's comparable to what we see in other major gateway markets. Okay, so just moving on to the other foot, asset types, asset sectors that are out of sorts, they're on the back foot. Which sector do you think has further potential or the potential to come around to the upswing and have some growth? I think what we'll see is more confidence coming back in office markets. I think the experience of the pandemic has had, has had different cause and effect on different sectors. I think it's caused more uncertainty for the outlook for office markets and in particular the extent to which there'll be disruption and higher vacancy. That's yet to fully play out. But I do expect that when we see our strong economic recovery – which we were starting to see, and I do believe we can quickly resume once these renewed restrictions end. But I think over time, we'll see more confidence coming back to office markets, and I can easily envisage at the higher quality end of the market that we'll see some yield compression 
and a return to growth in office markets. I think that other sectors, you know, the operational real estate, and we've referred to that in the context of these sale and leaseback transactions, but more generally, I think there's a lot of scope for growth in sectors that are aligned to demographic need and parts of the economy that are growing. If you think you think of the rise of cloud computing and the impact that that's going to have on demand for data centres, if you think of the ageing population, the impact that that's going to have on demand for healthcare assets, if you think of the rise in the number of people renting and the potential growth of the build-to-rent sector, I think you've got sectors there that are very much aligned with demographic fundamentals and long-term growth drivers. And I see a lot of developer and investor interest in those sectors going forward. Do you believe in the working from home movement that will disrupt the office sector in the future? Where do you think that will play out and how do you put numbers around that? It's very, very difficult. It is difficult. Look, it's a huge question of its own right, Andrew. We might need a separate podcast to um, <laughs> cover, to talk about that in all its detail. Look, I think it's a complex issue. It will take time to resolve. What I think what we see at the moment is a range of responses. I think there's no one path of travel for business. Just as Angus mentioned, that there's a lot of reasons that companies would be looking at sale and leaseback transactions. I think there's a lot of approaches that will be taken to workplace. Some will choose to upgrade their space. Some will choose to change the size of their footplate. Some might look to consolidate, given some more of their staff are working from home. But on the other hand, there'll be other attributes that are becoming more important at collaborative spaces aimed at bringing people together and driving productivity there. They're undoubtedly becoming a greater feature of office buildings. And so in some cases, that leads to a demand to more space. So yeah, I think it's by no means clear. I think what we expect to see is that as the economy comes back, so too will the demand for office space. But I do think that what the pandemic has done is shifted the balance, or it's led to an acceleration in some of the drivers that we are seeing playing out anyway. And that is leading to more demand for the better quality space that offers the sorts of attributes that staff and business want in terms of driving collaboration and productivity. And I think to the extent that we see a negative impact, that that will be taking a toll on the secondary market and the lower grade space that doesn't offer those sorts of attributes. So I think we'll see movement within the office sector, but I don't expect to see a significant downturn in the long-term level of demand. And what about the retail sector? What are you seeing there? Well, look, the retail space, I think we've seen that obviously even before the pandemic that was suffering from both the reality and the perception of the change in consumer behaviour. I think the pandemic has accelerated some aspects of that, but I think what's becoming clear is there's a lot of retail assets there that are doing well, that you can't put them all in the same basket. And to the extent that there's been a negative perception that actually offers an opportunity in those parts of the retail market that are performing well and where there's a strong outlook. So I think it's a mistake to put the whole sector in one basket, if you like, and just assume that it's all facing difficulty. I think that's by no means the case. And I think we'll see that shaking out and more distinction between the different types of retail that are doing well versus not so well going forward. Okay. And Angus, these corporations... Are they selling off multiple assets at once or is it, in your opinion, like obviously your boots on the ground, are they selling entire portfolios of multiple assets in different locations? Usually it's really sort of one-off assets. We have seen in the past portfolio sales where they might have multi-buildings in multi-locations, but but invariably we're seeing they're sort of one-off. We are seeing some portfolios, but I think the majority would be one-off sales. And when you do get one of these deals over the line, you sign them up to sell the property. 
do you take it directly to the REITs? Like, is it kind of like an off-market pocket listing or do you only put it online and let them fight over it? No, there's both. I mean, some businesses like to go what we call off-market just so they're not attracting any public attention to themselves. Others are very happy to put it through a normal marketing campaign. We've seen a lot of deals happen via both mediums. Invariably, we prefer to go to market. We get some really good exposure. We get to talk to everyone. But if our instructions are different, and that does happen, and they really just want us to go to a select group or whatever it may be, then their instructions, that's what we do. But there's no rhyme or reason to it. Yeah, I guess because a lot of these corporations, they're probably asset listed. So they have to take into account the shareholders' view. And they obviously don't want their share price to drop as well from potentially looking like they're doing something because they're in trouble. No, it's really the opposite. If they're listed like that, normally the probity dictates they have to go to market. It's more public. They certainly don't want to be quizzed by shareholders that they didn't get the best price because they didn't go to all and sundry. It's more the privately held businesses that would go off market. We're finding more so just the um, accountability and the and this probity ensures that they go to an open market situation. So as government would, it's very rare, if not impossible, for government to deal off market. Okay. With this trend, how much has it increased since the last 12 months of corporate uh, sales? Yeah, right, the corporate sales. So in calendar year 2019, there was around 3.2 billion of transactions. In calendar year 2020, there was 4.3 billion. So that's a pickup of 38% during 2020. So a pretty significant increase. And a lot of that came through the industrial space, which, as we mentioned, for the drivers we've talked about, both in terms of the corporate motivations and also the achievable pricing in the market, that's where we saw the most significant pickup of about of 87% actually during 2020. No worries, mate. Well, we'll wrap it up there. Where can listeners go to contact yourself and Angus? Right, they can contact us at Night Frank. Our details are on the website, Ben Burston and Angus Clem, or on the back of our many market reports. All right, perfect. And you guys are available on LinkedIn, I'm positive. We are. Perfect, mate. Today's guests have been Ben Burston and Angus Clem. Cheers, guys. Cheers, Andrew. Cheers now. Data don't, don't lie. That's right. In this segment, I'm going to share the property data that I collect each month. I'm going to choose one location, good or bad, to give you guys a true reflection of what the numbers are saying about that location. So this week's location is Bathurst. Yes, we're back in New South Wales. And I thought I'd shed a little bit of light on this location because it is a location where you can get a higher yield. But that comes with great risk. There's a high vacancy in this area for all three sectors. And I'll go through a few numbers now. All right, so if you're looking for a good cap rate, this is your market. In the office sector, you can achieve within a range of 7.25 to 8.75 cap rate for an office asset there. Now, they're usually a house. It's that type of market where the office zoning is in a residential area. And what's interesting about that as well is the rate per square meter that they're charging. You can achieve within a range of 125 to 
in the office sector. There have been two assets sold since the start of the year and one new lease written there as well. There's low stock on hand, 4.7%, but high vacancy at about 43%. Moving on to the retail sector, there has been three properties sold, four new leases written. Stock on hand is sitting at about 12.5%. Vacancy is high again at 35%. Cap rates achieved in this area for the retail sector are within a range of 6.5% to 8.75%. And the rate per square meter currently achieved or currently can be achieved in that area are between $155 to $620. Okay, moving on to the industrial sector. Now, this one's really interesting. There has been 42 industrial assets sold since January this year, three new leases, vacancy is scary high, and the stock on hand is at 26.1%. So there must be a, a fair bit of development going on in the industrial sector there. Cap rates are still within a range of 7 to 8.75%. Rates per square meter that you can achieve in that area for the industrial sector are between $65 to $170, so a reasonable range there. Moving on to the employment opportunities there. So Bathurst has an estimated population of around 43,000, and at the start of the year, there were 131 jobs available in that market, and now there is currently 262 jobs, so it's actually doubled. That's good to see. All right, that brings us to the end of this week's Data Don't Lie. And if you would like to be able to make insights like this into your favorite commercial property market, this information is all going to be readily available in the platform that I am creating, CP Data. It's going to change the way that you look at commercial markets, giving you a complete understanding of the local market you're looking at in minutes. So all this information is from CP Data that is currently in development and there's going to be an announcement about that this week. So stay tuned for that. But if you'd like to get notified, go to www.commercialpropertydata.com.au Put in your email address and you'll be one of the first people to know when the platform goes live. Today's show has now come to an end. Thank you so much to my guests today and Kevin McLeod for the music. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, success is your duty, obligation and responsibility. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a developer life production. <laughs>